I invite you to take up a Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, if you have a pew Bible, that's page 1,100. Four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. And we're looking today at the story of Jesus healing the man with a demon. So Luke 8, and we'll read from verse 26 to 39. This is God's Word. Then they, that is Jesus, along with his disciples, sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have I to do what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear." So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Well, let's ask God again for a blessing on our time studying his word. Let's pray. Almighty and triune God, you are the great creator and Lord over all, and we're aware of how, of how you give us daily bread to strengthen our hearts, to strengthen our bodies, to strengthen our whole beings. You give us good gifts oil to make our face shine, as the psalmist says, and wine to gladden our hearts. But you also are the God who must give your spirit for there to be life. And when you hide your face, when you take away your spirit, there is no life. And so it's to you that we 
look this morning and we cry out to you that you would turn your face to us, impart to us a blessing, pour out your Holy Spirit to us so that we would then turn to praise you, that we would say, I will sing of my Redeemer. I will sing of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God forever. Oh Lord, we look to you and ask for your blessing as we study your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a very familiar story if you've been in church for any length of time. Luke 8, Jesus healing this man with many demons. And the story that's right before our story is the story of Jesus with his disciples crossing the lake. And of course, there's a great storm that comes along the lake and threatens to swamp the boat. But then, after Jesus calms the storm, they arrive here on the far side of the lake in the country of the Gerasenes, opposite Galilee. This is primarily Gentile country. This is outside the covenant community. And Luke, in the context of our passage, he's been setting up these contrasts, these tensions. Because our story is one of four parts. The part right before us that I just mentioned with the storm, where we see desperate disciples, and then we see Jesus and how he has the power over the dangers of creation. And then right after our text, it's a two-part story, where first we see a desperate woman who comes trembling in fear, but then Jesus who has power over disease. And in verse 48, we read, your faith has made you well, that is, you're saved. Go in peace. And then we see a desperate father. And we see how Jesus has power even over death. And in verse 50, do not fear, only believe. And she, that is his daughter, will be made well, will be saved. And so then here in our story, this second part of these four episodes, what do we see? A desperate man, and we see that Jesus has power over the demons. And you can see just at a simple reading of the text what desperate straits this man was in. This man was host to an entire army of Satan's forces. This was a desperate situation. This man, for all intents and purposes, was beyond hope. And as we work through this text... I challenge you and invite you to think about somebody that you know that you would say is beyond hope. We're honest, I think we've probably all known somebody like that. Whether that's somebody in the covenant community, one of the covenant kids who's gone astray, whether that's one of our neighbors, somebody that we would look at and say, this person is completely beyond hope. But are they? Are they beyond the hope of a Savior who has power over Satan and his forces? That is what we're looking at today. And Luke is challenging us to see in his gospel here, to see a Savior, to see Jesus, who is the bringer of peace, the Savior who brings salvation. And so our theme today is just that the devil and his forces, they are powerful. We want to talk about that. But Jesus Christ has power 
over Satan and his minions. And Christ, he has the power to save even the most desperate and then transform them into an instrument for his service. And so we want to see today how peace reigns in Christ. And our challenge, what I propose to you, is to look to the Savior, to know, to to believe that he is the bringer of peace, that he has the power over Satan, to believe that, and then to go forth to a, a lost and a dying world as his emissaries. Well, our first point is the power of darkness or Satan's forces and the hopelessness that is attached to that. You know, in our, in our post-enlightenment world, we've been told for so long that science is the answer to everything. Science answers all things. We don't need God. There is no God, let alone anything else spiritual. But the Bible, in fact, says, no, Satan is real and demons are real. They were originally created good, but they rebelled against God. And they are fallen. They are real. And they are powerful. And in our text here today, we see one of the most intense forms of demonic possession. One of the most hard to imagine and terrifying situations. One of the most pitiable individuals in all of Scripture. And so Jesus, as he disembarks on, this east, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, this Gentile territory, and another tip-off that is Gentile territory is simply the fact of the pigs, right? Gentiles had pigs. The Jews would not have had pigs. But Jesus, as he steps out of this boat, he's immediately met by this man with many demons. And I want you to keep your Bible open and look there at verse 27. What do we find out about this man? We find out there that he's naked. He's living in open shame. Sin is shameful. Sin is shameful. If you were to go walking down the, the streets of St. Anne's without any clothes, that would be shameful. But if also all of your sins were to be on display for the whole world, that also would be incredibly shameful. This man here being naked shows us this man was living in open shame. He has no home, we're told. He's ostracized from society. And this also is the natural effect of sin. Sin isolates you and I. When we are living in unrepentant sin, the devil uses that and our own shame causes us to be isolated. This man is also living among the tombs. He's living among the tombs. He's cut off from others, from society, from fellowship with others. He's effectively living as good as dead. He's like the walking dead, alive still. But we're seeing already the effects of Satan, the effects of living in sin. Matthew and Mark add a few other details that are not here in Luke that nobody could pass along that way because of this man. Mark says that he was cutting himself with stones and crying out like a maniac. This man is a terror to others, and he is a terror to himself. And it's such a gloomy and awful, desperate, hopeless picture. 
And this is the vivid reality of the misery and the horror of living under the power of Satan's tyranny. And then in verse 29, we find out there that many times he was seized, that the demons would, uh, that this demoniac would be apprehended by the authorities, but he couldn't be bound. And he would break out of the chains and he would be driven by the demons out into the desert. This poor man reduced to a terrorized and terrorizing brute. If you lived in the vicinity, you would know about him and you would do anything possible to take a route far around where this man is. You know what a terror he is. And then in verse 30, Jesus asks him, what is your name? What does he say? Legion. Legion. Kids, do you know what an infestation is? What is an infestation? Usually when a large number of Creatures or animals of some kind are all congregated in a place and causing problems, whether damage or disease. My parents, one time when they bought a house, they ripped down the drywall from the ceiling and they found the entire ceiling in the master bedroom was packed with wasp nests. It was an infestation. I heard a story of a family who had an infestation of black rat snakes and they didn't find it out until... One of these snakes, three and a half foot long snake, was slithering through uh, the playroom where their toddler was playing. It's an infestation of snakes. This man has an infinitely bigger problem. He has an infestation of demons. A legion was usually about 6,000 troops, plus auxiliary troops as well. Now Mark tells us that there were about 2,000 pigs. We're not told exactly how many demons there are, but I think we can all agree, whether it was 6,000, 4,000, 2,000, this man had a huge problem. This was a hopeless situation. And you and I know from Scripture the effects of demons. If, If you're familiar with the Scriptures, you know of the boy from Mark 9, from one demon thrown into the fire and into the water. From Acts 19, the sons of Sceva, Seven men, beat up, bloodied, they ran naked from the house because of one demoniac. And this man here is effectively host to an army of Satan's forces, an infestation of the forces of darkness. What a terrifying and hopeless situation. And so my friends, we're reminded from this text of the reality of Satan and his forces and their power. They are real, and they are deadly. They are dangerous. And so what hope could there possibly be against such darkness? What hope could there be for someone trapped in this? Well, this is where we come to our second point. Because the man disembarking from the boat is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior, And you might expect, as this man comes running down the hillside to meet him, you might expect like a warlike clash. And it is, in some senses, a warlike scene. We could be a little imaginative, and perhaps there's still even storm clouds in the backdrop from the storm that Jesus just calmed. And if you know this man, if you're watching from the hillside, you would expect him to run down and fall upon Jesus and his disciples 
and beat them up like he'd done to others. But what does the text say? He doesn't come down and fall upon them. He comes running down and he falls at the feet of Jesus. Powerless. And then in verse 28, what do we read there? He cries out with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Son of the Most High God. If, you're, if you were reading through Luke, Luke already introduced you to this. What did he tell Mary in chapter 1? The Son to be born of you will be Son of the Most High God. What is Luke telling us? This man that we see here, He is the fulfillment of all of Scripture. He is the heir of the throne of David. And as the angel told Mary, he will inherit David's throne and his reign will never end. He will be king and ruler over all. He is the son of the most high God. And it's so striking what the disciples wonder and marvel at at the end of the previous story. Who is this man who calms the storm? The demons know. The demons know this is the son of the living God. And he is all-powerful. And this demoniac falls at the feet of the son of the most high God. Jesus, he is king. And he will be the savior of this demoniac. And throughout the narrative, if you read the text, what do you notice but that Jesus over and again is in control. Verse 28 and verse 31. What happens? Jesus is begged. The the demons beg Jesus. Why? Because they have no authority in the presence of this man. And in verse 32, he is asked permission. Again, Jesus, he is the one with power and authority. And it's quite striking What actions does Jesus perform? Did you notice? As you read through the text, what does Jesus do? Only two things. He steps out of the boat, and he steps back in the boat. That's it. Now, in the world in which Jesus was living at the time, exorcisms were not all that uncommon. And there were Jewish exorcists, and they would have magical objects. An exorcism would be a very... A colorful event, to say the least. There'd be a lot of, you know, flailing of arms and, and movement and ritual and so forth. It's striking, though, in our text, the Lord of glory, it's almost as if he simply stands with his hands in his pockets and he rebukes the demon and simply with a word from his mouth expels the demons. This is our Savior. This is the Son of the living God who has power over the forces of Satan. That just with a mere command from his mouth, what do we see? The kingdom of God has broken in. The true king of David's throne, he is here. He has come. That's what Luke is showing us. This is the reality of what's happening in this passage. Jesus, who has power over the dangers of fallen creation, who has power over disease, who has power over death itself. Jesus, our Lord and King, has power over the demons. And he is able to save this 
man to the uttermost. And that is exactly what happens. Verse 36 tells us about how this man was healed. And the word that's used there for healed is, or for saved is the word that in the next stories will be used for, yes, physical healing, will be used for the girl who is healed, but it's a very specific and special word in Scripture as well that refers to salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has saved and redeemed this man. And without even lifting a finger, Jesus had his foes, as it were, in a stranglehold. And so if we were to pause here and think about what's going on as we see our Savior, our Sovereign Lord, the bringer of peace, this man's only hope. From what we've talked about so far, what can we say? Well, we start, we should say this. The devil and his forces, as we've already said, are powerful. A thousand times more powerful than you or I. And they hate you. They hate me. They hate your family. They hate this church. They hate God. But the good news of the gospel, the glory of this passage, is that Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Son of the Most High God, is infinitely more powerful than the devil and all of his forces. We've talked already, I've mentioned, how our world, our culture, has for a long time wanted to do away with all things spiritual, has wanted to do away with God. But it doesn't actually ultimately work because you and I are at rock bottom spiritual beings. And so what we see happening, I think, in our culture now is that in some ways... The door, as it were, has been opened. You see, when Christianity came into the West, it pushed out the overt evidence of the devil and his activity. But now we're opening that door again in the West because at rock bottom, we're spiritual creatures and we're realizing our society is we cannot live without spirituality. And some of the evidence of this is in the movies, the TV shows, and the literature that permeates our culture. The stuff is all over the place. People aren't questioning now whether demons are real. It's assumed. And movies about exorcisms and so forth are commonplace. And we shouldn't be surprised because the devil is real. Demonic activity is real. They are powerful. But as Christians, our hope is Jesus Christ, the one who is infinitely more powerful. And the good news as a Christian is that you have the Holy Spirit living in your heart, that you cannot be possessed by demons. Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, dwelling in you. Good news, but caution as well for us to be careful about those things that we engage in, young people especially, in our universities, our public universities, there are people who dabble with occult stuff. There are witches. There are people who play with Ouija boards. We should have nothing to do with that kind of stuff. And I would submit to you that we should be careful as well with the movies and the TV shows that we watch, that we allow into our homes. But then that we always must go back to Christ again and to realize 
that in him we have a Savior infinitely more powerful than the devil and his forces. But then maybe you're saying, okay, well, I've driven down the streets of St. Anne's and Vineland and so forth, and you know, I haven't seen any creatures with the red eyes or anything. Well, Bishop Ryle, over a hundred years ago, tells us, reminds us of something very helpful and I think very important when he says that possession like what we see in this text might be rare in our modern world, but let us not forget the devil's fearful power over many hearts and souls and that he still urges many in whose hearts he reigns into, he writes, self-dishonoring and self-destroying habits of life. You and I maybe don't, at this point, see a lot of overt activity of the devil and his forces. But you and I are living in a world where there are only two kingdoms, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, and they are at war, and we are caught up in that. And as you and I fight with sin and temptation, we are engaged in that battle. And we're reminded in Ephesians 6, verse 12, that we don't fight against flesh and blood, that we fight against the rulers and against the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Bible tells us about Satan, that he has been sinning from the beginning, that he is a liar, that he hates us and God. But the Bible also tells us, 1 John 3, 8, that the reason that the Son of God appeared was what? To destroy the works of the devil. How did he do that? How did he do that? You know the story. This was through Jesus Christ when he died on that cross. When on that cross he put to shame the rulers and the authorities, triumphing over them. That the power of Satan was broken by our Savior on that cross. So that Genesis 3 verse 15 would be fulfilled. That the seed of the woman, yes, his heel would be bruised. But the head of the serpent would be crushed. And that Jesus Christ, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and as he reigns as the Davidic king, and in his imminent return... He is placing all of God's enemies under his feet. All of his enemies and ours. And in the story here, Christ did not immediately cast out the demons into the abyss. But there is coming a day when he will. We know that. We know the end of the story. Revelation tells us, in the end, Jesus Christ will cast into hell all of Satan's forces, Satan himself, death itself will be no more. Cast forever into the lake of fire and all those who have not confessed the name of Jesus Christ. Praise God. All the evil for all of its power and greatness will finally be destroyed. Christ and his people vindicated. Final victory is coming through Jesus Christ. And this also has application for evangelism. Because again, if we think about those people around us, people that we know, whether covenant kids, whether those people who walk our streets, 
those who might be junkies, ex-convicts, people we look at and we think instinctively, they're the walking dead. Maybe the rich around us, they'll never come to Christ. What do we see in this text? If Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God, has the power to set this man free, does he not have the power to set free anyone that he so chooses? So as you and I go and share the gospel message of Jesus Christ, talk about the power of the cross, there is such great hope and confidence because we go and we know if we were to stand in front of an individual like this, we would have no power to do anything. But our God does. And that God sends us in the power of his Holy Spirit to go and to bring his gospel to the world. We have an all-powerful Savior who is able to redeem even the most hopeless, even the most destitute, to give them peace. And then what? Then once saved, what does this mean for you and I? For personal sanctification as well. This is so important. Because again, why did Jesus Christ come? First John tells us to destroy the works of the devil. As you and I struggle with temptation, maybe you're caught in some sins. Maybe an addiction. Maybe you're struggling with anger. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's drunkenness. What are you battling? The same thing applies to that as well. Go to Christ. Look to him again. Confess those sins. You and I need to believe today and every day that our Savior is able to free us from those sins. He is able to destroy the works of the devil in our lives. And we must go to him. So I challenge you, I call you, I urge you. If you're struggling with sin, if there are deep roots of sin in your life, go to Christ. Look to him. Know, believe, he is able to set you free. He is able to give you victory over those sins. We know sin leads to open shame. Sin isolates us from others. Sin leads ultimately to death. What does Paul say in Romans 6? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would, be no, long, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died with Christ has been set free through Christ. You and I need to know this, to remember this, to believe this. And when we are going through the battles of temptation, we need to cry out, Lord Jesus, Son of David, Son of the Most High God, have mercy on me. Christ died on the cross to set you free from sin. We will not be perfect in this life. We will continue to struggle. But what do we see in the New Testament over and again? What does Paul pray for the churches over and again? That they would be pure blameless, holy, so that at the return of Christ, the bride of Christ would be presented holy and pure and blameless. As Christians, let us run on towards that end. Well, we need to run quickly to our last point, 
and we just want to talk for just a minute about the twofold response. Jesus has healed this man. The pigs have, the, the demons have come over the pigs. They've rushed down to their watery graves. And then in verse 34, what do we see but that the herdsmen who just watched all of their pigs, hundreds upon hundreds of pigs, rush violent down, violently down to their watery graves in the lake. And what do they do? They flee. And if you think about it, there's a sense in which you can't really blame them. Think about it. If you were watching, whatever, say some hyenas eating a carcass, and if the hyenas all of a sudden hightail it, what does that mean? That means a creature greater and more powerful has come. And that's kind of the principle in a sense. These herdsmen who knew the terror of this man, they flee. Why? Because somebody greater and more powerful has come. And in verse 35, the townsfolk, they come and they find the former demoniac healed, saved, and they're afraid in the presence of the all-powerful Jesus. And the remarkable thing, we might have so many questions about these pigs, what's going on, why didn't Jesus send them to the abyss right away? What's Luke's focus? Luke's focus is on the response of these herdsmen. Luke's focus is on this man, formerly hopeless, destitute, now saved in Jesus Christ and has peace. And verse 37, though, you see the whole group of the local garrisons. What do they do? They ask Jesus to leave. Why? Because notice, they are seized with a great fear. And that is so ironic this former demoniac who had been absolutely seized by these forces of the evil one. And now these people are seized with fear. And these herdsmen, the irony is that these herdsmen reject the good shepherd. Who could this be that even legions of demons are expelled by him? And friends, if we were to pause right here, there's a fear that will drive you to Jesus, but there's a fear that will drive you away from Jesus. And let me ask you, if you're sitting here listening, and if you are not a Christian today, you have every right to be afraid of this man, Jesus Christ. You have every reason to be terrified of him, because one day, he will cast into hell Satan, his forces, death itself, and all who have not believed in him. But the good news today, and I call you, I urge you, if you are here and you are not a Christian, the good news, the call of the gospel is to come to Christ, to bow before him, to call out to him for mercy. And you will find at the foot of his cross, you'll find mercy, you'll find salvation, you'll find forgiveness. You'll find life. The first response is rejection of Jesus. The second response is the demoniac is now a disciple. Where do we find him? Verse 35. We find him sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ. A posture of humble submission. The posture of a disciple. The demons, through this formerly naked and deranged man, begged Jesus not to torment them. 
Now, this clothed and in his right mind man begs Jesus. Verse 38, this is so beautiful. Begs Jesus simply to be with him. What an incredible statement. Having been saved and set free by the Redeemer, what is my plea? What do I beg of this God? Simply to be with him, to be with the one who has brought peace. What an incredible response. But then, remarkably, Jesus tells him, verse 39, no. Jesus denies his request and tells him instead, Go home and declare what God has done for you. And then what does he do? What does our text say, that very last verse? Is he unfaithful to what Jesus just said? Jesus said, go and tell how much God has done for you. What does he do? Our text says he goes and declares how much Jesus has done for him. Because God's acts are revealed chiefly and supremely through Jesus Christ, through what he has done on the cross, through his great salvation. And the deeper irony in our text is that Jesus has, in a very real sense, even though he gets into the boat and leaves, has not left. Because his own homegrown evangelist is sent back to infiltrate his own local towns and cities, proclaiming the amazing salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus tells him, go home. Go to your home, go to your countrymen, go to your neighbors and tell about what God has done for you. What an incredible thing. And you know, so often, maybe you've thought this, I think that we can think and just assume and have this mentality that it's only those formal missionaries, those evangelists, those formal evangelists, those pastors who go and preach Jesus Christ, who tell others the good news. Not according to our text. Jesus tells this man, go home. Tell about what Jesus has done. Similar thing to the woman at the well, no? Go. What does she do? She goes and she tells those people, her, the people of her hometown, what the Savior has done. And that's what this man does. And so you and I have this same commission to go, to go to our homes, go to our workplaces, to the grocery stores, talk with our neighbors, and do what? Tell of the great things that Jesus has done for your soul. How once you were dead, now you are alive and you have peace in Jesus' name. You know, it's, it's quite interesting. Our own churches, our churches will get together and they'll sometimes write up documents and so forth. In 2012, they crafted a document for the biblical basis for missions. And they actually said the same thing, the same point that I'm making, that it's not simply the ordained ministers who are to go out and bring the gospel to those around them. And they quote this text, Luke 8, 39. And they say that all of us, it's not just, it's not just enough to confess Christ in our church, to confess Christ before our pastor and our elders. We are called to confess Christ to the world around us, to our neighbors. And that same call is placed on you and I today to go to the lost and dying world and to tell of how much Jesus has done.
But as we wrap up, let me just ask you briefly, maybe sometimes we don't do that because we've forgotten how much Jesus has done for us. So I challenge you, I call you, urge you today to think about that. What has Jesus Christ done for you, for your soul? What has he done in saving you, in redeeming you, in dying on the cross for you? If it is true that he has set you free from all of your wickedness, if he has set you free from the power and the tyranny of the devil and his forces, is that not reason to go and to declare the wondrous things that God has done for you in giving you peace, salvation, life, hope? We're called to go. And I'll just end with this story. There's a story of missionaries in Ethiopia. They wanted to go to a tribe called the Gopha people to bring the gospel. And so a number of people, they, they sold their homes, they moved their families, they built houses, planted crops, and preached the gospel. And people were converted. But too much had changed in Gopha. Less people were going to the witch doctors. Less tax was collected for the cultic priesthood. Less bribe money was given to officials. And so there was a police lieutenant who was sent to go and arrest one of these evangelists named Atero. They chained his wrists. They clapped his ankles in irons. They paraded Atero through the marketplace as an example of what would happen to those who would follow this new religion. And he was ordered, go back to your own village. Take your Jesus with you. We don't want him here. Atero hopped forward, and he said, I can go, but the gospel will stay. By the power of God, I have planted Jesus in Gopha. He is planted in the hearts and souls of the Gopha people. I can go, but Jesus will stay. Jesus Christ is not here with us today physically. He's in heaven reigning at the right hand of God, on the throne of David as the Son of the Most High, God. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, He is planted in the hearts of the people of St. Anne's, of Vineland, and of these surrounding regions. Jesus Christ and His gospel is here. So let us go. Let us take this charge this week as we go on in our lives to go to herald this good news of the gospel, to tell those around us of the good news of Jesus Christ, going in the confidence that Christ is the all-powerful Savior who is able to redeem even the most destitute and hopeless. That is our God. And we go with the message of peace. May God help us in this. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you for this text. We praise you for the challenge that it is. We praise you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of David, Son of the Most High God, heir to David's throne, the one who is right now reigning and ruling in heaven, the one who has broken the power of the devil. Lord, as we go through life, as we fight temptation, as we uh, go out and evangelize, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. We pray that you would help us to believe and to know Jesus Christ is all-powerful. He is the Savior of the world. He is the bringer of peace. Oh, Lord, would you fill us with greater knowledge and understanding of this, greater love for the Savior, greater confidence in his gospel. 
And Lord, as we go out, would you break the power of sin in our lives that we would truly be a people pure and blameless before you at Christ's return. Lord, send us out to a lost and a dying world that as we look at those around us, our neighbors, our friends, our family who don't know Christ, that our hearts would break over their destitute state as we see them living in shame, as we see the effects of sin breaking down their marriages, their families, their relationships, their jobs, and that we would call them to account and that we would tell them about the wonderful things that Jesus Christ has done for us. Help us in these things, Lord, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.